When I was in school, I went to the same school all of my 12 years of learning, and uh, it was a very small school in a very small town, and so there was one cafeteria for the elementary school, the junior high, and the high school. We all ate in the same room, obviously at different times. But there was something that was very predictable about our school cafeteria. And that is, for the 12 years that I was in school, they served the same thing every day of the week. Like each Monday had the same menu. Each Tuesday had the same menu. Each Wednesday had the same menu. And what I remember most of all were the vegetables. Monday was green bean day. It was always green beans. It was never anything else. On Monday, you got green beans. On Tuesday, you got cabbage. I don't mean coleslaw. I don't mean sauerkraut. I mean boiled cabbage. On Wednesday, it was corn, as if corn is a vegetable. It's a starch. Um, And on... And on Thursday, it was lima beans. But what they did on Friday was what always got me. I could take the rest of it. Guess what we had on Friday? Mixed vegetables. (laughs) Guess where they got those? They're just dumping everything else back in the pot. Now, if it was cold, we had vegetable soup, which was essentially the same thing with some water added or whatever. But... They would take all the leftover vegetables and just make this stew or this soup out of it. Uh, And in a a lot of ways, that's what the false beliefs at Colossae, that threatened Colossae, were like. They would just take a hodgepodge of different false beliefs and sort of dump them in on the new believers in these churches. The Apostle Paul wanted to warn this church to stand firm in the truth they had already been taught. The Apostle Paul wanted to say to them, you've received accurate teaching. You don't have to add anything else or mix anything else in. You don't need to fall for some bad stew, some some concoction of false beliefs and distracting doctrines that's going to keep you from what God has for you. Now, we study the Bible in our church We are a church that believes the Bible is the word of God. We believe that it is truthful and we believe it has a transforming effect on our lives. But when we go to life group, when we go to a worship service and the the Bible is opened, we don't study God's word to know more. We study God's word to grow more. It's not just information that we're after. It's not just knowledge that we are after. We desire our hearts to be changed. And so it's not information, but transformation. We believe God's word has the power to change our hearts and thus change our lives. And so the apostle Paul wanted them to understand and wants us to understand today that the word of God is sufficient, that you don't have to add other things into God's word in order for him to change your life. This this section that we're about to study today, and I've intentionally abbreviated it because I knew how much time I'd take up front, um, introduces a new section in the Colossian letter. It starts with the English word, therefore. Now, I'll give you a little hint. When you're studying the writings of the apostle Paul, one of the things you will find is that 
When he uses that word, therefore, he's beginning to make a turn in his teaching. He's saying on the basis of what we've already learned, therefore, do this. So that's what he's doing for us in this, in this passage. Let's just kind of plow into it together, beginning at verse 6 of Colossians chapter 2. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed, and overflowing with gratitude, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Paul begins to challenge the Colossian Christians. And there's a challenge for us today as well. That is that we live in a world that wants us to either water down what God's word says, or it says, well, you can just hang on to your Christianity, just mix some new thoughts in there with it. And Paul would say, no, there are a couple of things that we need to do. Number one, he would say to you and me, strive for spiritual progress. You say, I want you to strive for spiritual progress. There's a, a challenge here. And Paul says it this way, as you received Jesus Christ as Lord, now I want you to walk in him. In the same way, I want you to walk in him. What does that mean? Well, he says, in the way that you receive Jesus is the way you walk in Jesus. You received Jesus by grace. So you walk by grace. You received Jesus through faith, so you walk by faith. You didn't receive Jesus by works, so you don't achieve your sanctification. It is a gift from God. It is God growing you. It is God changing you. It is God transforming you. It's not your work that leads to your, uh, to your holiness, that leads to you pleasing God. It is his work in you. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. That's the way Paul wrote this in the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verse 6. But he's saying to them, the way you receive Jesus is the way then you walk or you live in him. That word also, the word received, is a really interesting word in the New Testament. It's specifically a word that speaks of a student who receives instruction from a teacher. Paul used it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, when he said, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. Paul's saying, I was taught this, now I'm teaching you this. I received this teaching, now I'm passing it on to you. And what he's saying to the Colossian Christians is, Epaphras, your pastor, has taught you faithfully. Now live out what you've taught. Don't be swayed by the winds of culture and by some flashy looking, looking new teaching. Look, if it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, it's not new. It's been in this book for 2000 years. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to grasp what God has been teaching you for a long, long time. He uses three metaphors. He uses one from agriculture, from plants, he says, first of all, I want you to be firmly rooted. Having been firmly rooted, 
It's almost the image of, of a tree. And he says, I want you to have roots that go way down deep. Jeremiah, the Old Testament prophet, used this same image when he talked about faithful believers. And he said, they are like trees planted along a riverbank with roots that reach deep into the water. Such trees are not bothered by the heat or worried by long months of drought. Their leaves stay green and they never stop producing fruit. When Marianne and I moved here in 2008, 12 years ago, we bought a house. It's a house that we still live in and it had no trees. And so we planted three trees in the front yard and I thought this is going to be great. I'm going to be able to tell our daughter that those trees are as old as you are. They were planted the same year that you were born. When you're 12, they'll be 12 year they're 12 year old trees. When she's 20, they'll be 20 year old trees. I mean, I thought this kind of sentimental. You know, I thought this will be fantastic. And then the drought hit. The legendary record-breaking drought of Wichita Falls, 2000, well, 2011, 2010, whatever, the 2013. And those trees began to wither and the leaves on them turned brown and began to fall off. And the next spring, they didn't put on any leaves. And I realized my trees had died and they had died for one reason. They did not have the root structure in place. They did not have the maturity in place to draw deeply on the moisture that was way down deep. They could only get what was on the surface. And no matter how much I tried to water them until the city made me stop, I could not keep them alive because they didn't have the root structure. Here's what Paul would say to you and me. Is your faith deep enough to sustain you when the drought comes? Is your faith deep enough? Have, have you drawn deeply on God's word? Are you, are you ready to stand when the drought comes. All of us are going to face dry times. All of us are going to face difficulties. And Paul is saying, are you firmly rooted like a tree that can't just be picked up and moved to another location? He secondly uses a construction metaphor. He says, I want you to be built up and in him and established in your faith. Now you see the construction metaphor in that first word, built up. I mean, just to, like to build a building. It makes sense. The word established, though, is a word for a foundation. Jesus told a story on one occasion about two guys who were going to build houses. And they were going to build these houses. And one guy looked around and he found this nice, smooth, sandy spot. And he thought, well, that's great. I don't have to do much work. I can just build on this nice, smooth, sandy spot. And he built his house there. The other guy dug down deep and he found bedrock and he made a foundation for his house. And then Jesus said this. When the storm came, Jesus didn't say if the storm comes. The question isn't an if, it's when the storm comes in your life and in my life. He said, when the storm came, the man whose house was built on the sandy foundation, it collapsed and its ruin was great. But the man who had dug down deep and found something rock solid to build his life on, his house stood firm. I think Jesus is saying that to us. I think Paul is saying that to us today. He's asking us, what is the foundation for your life? What is it built on? Is it built on the shifting sands of popular opinion and whatever this culture says is right this week? Is it built 
on what the mobs tell us that we have to believe and we have to entertain and we have to accept? Or is it built on something eternal and solid? There's a new stadium, a football stadium in Los Angeles. I mean, I mean, Jerry built Jerry World down there, the AT&T Stadium a few years ago, and it was a marvel uh, to, the, to the world, that huge screen and all that. Well, the one in LA apparently outdoes it. I mean, it's supposed to be this sophisticated place. Stan Kroenke, who actually owns the Wagoner Ranch just west of here now, uh, this billionaire built this thing, and he didn't even ask for taxpayer dollars. He built it himself, funded the whole thing himself. It costs twice as much as AT&T Stadium. $5 billion. That's with a B. $5 billion for this stadium. But he had a problem. It's in the landing path for Los Angeles International Airport. And it sits only a few miles from the beaches of the Pacific Ocean. And the soil there is very sandy. Now, in order to, put a, to keep a huge structure from blocking the landing path at Los Angeles uh, International Airport, he had to dig down, but he also had to dig down because that soil is incredibly sandy. They dug down 100 feet to lay the foundation for that new SoFi Stadium in Los Angeles in order for it not to be affected if there's an earthquake. Can you imagine building a stadium on sand and an earthquake hits? It's going to just collapse. Well, here's what Jesus would say to you and me. If your life is not built on the rock-solid foundation of Jesus and Jesus alone, when the storms come and when the seismic shifts of culture come, your life is going to fall apart. He's saying, build your life, build your marriage, build your career, build everything in your life on Jesus Christ and nothing else. And then he uses the metaphor of a river. He says, overflowing with gratitude. Overflowing. He wants our lives to spill over and to bless others. In John chapter 7, verse 38, Jesus said, He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his inmost being will flow rivers of living water. You see the change that Jesus is talking about. The change that he wants to see made known in our life isn't the change of getting religious. It's not putting on new habits. It's not talking a different way or, or acting a different way or, or obeying new rules. It's allowing Jesus Christ to come into your life and then letting, letting him overflow out of your life. It's living out of the overflow of the presence of Jesus in your life. He says, overflowing with gratitude. Now, here's what I'm curious about. Not, not a question for you to answer out loud. <laughs> I wonder how many of us would say in the last six months, my life is overflowing with gratitude. A lot of us are overflowing with grouchiness. And overflowing with complaining, and I, I confess I've been in the boat, okay? But I don't know about overflowing with gratitude. But that's Jesus' design for my life. His design for my life is that I would overflow with a sense of gratitude. Let me tell you how you cultivate gratitude. You cultivate gratitude with generosity. You do. 
Being generous with your money, yes, but being generous with your time, being generous with your influence, being generous in your community, being generous with those around you. Now, many of you have been very generous. And you know what? I, I'm really thankful for our church family. You've been generous to the church and, and you're, you're doing a great job of supporting the ministries of our church. When we had to shift from passing an offering plate to going to the generosity boxes and, and, uh, and maybe uh, online giving, those sort of things, I was a little worried. I mean, how's that going to work? But you've adapted to that so incredibly well. And God wants us to be generous in every way, not just to your church, but he wants us to be generous in every way. And I really believe that if you would begin to cultivate in your life a more generous spirit, you will see gratitude begin to take root and overflow out of your life. And out of the overflow of your gratitude, others will see the difference Jesus is making in you and be drawn to him. So strive for spiritual progress. And secondly, be sensitive to spiritual perils. Look at verse eight. In this new section of scripture, Paul writes this, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men and according to elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. He says, make sure nobody takes you captive. That's the language of, of a kidnapping or an abduction. It's, it's about somebody being held hostage against their will. And he says, I don't want you to be captivated by the world's philosophies and by, by this sort of self-actualization and self-help movement. I don't want you to be captive to, uh, to philosophies and to worldly point of views that keep you from being who Jesus wants you to be. That word captive got my attention when I saw that this week. And I began to think about uh, about how people are held captive in our world. And one of the great crises in our world today is the child trafficking crisis, where children are taken away from the life that they have, or maybe sometimes it's, it's children without parents who are, who are abducted by people and they're forced to do horrible and heinous things. One of the things that I discovered about trafficking is this that most of the time, it's not the image that I had. The image that I had of trafficking is that there's a child playing out in their front yard and this van drives up and somebody jumps out and throws them in the van, slams the door, drives them off, and they disappear. Now, that happens, that kind of thing happens sometimes. But that's not by and large the rule. By and large, the rule is that it's somebody that they begin to trust. Somebody begins to groom them. Somebody begins to... Um, to, to build a relationship of trust with them. And then the child isn't taken against their will. It's that they drop their guard. They surrender their will to this person that they trust. Paul says that's what's happening in the church at Colossae. If, you don't, if you're not careful, these false teachers are going to come in. They're going to groom you. They're going to cultivate a relationship with you. And what they're going to do is, is get, to, get to a place where they say, oh, you're not going to be taken against your will. You're just going to surrender your will. Here's what they were saying. Oh, you're a Christian. You love Jesus. That's great. You can love Jesus. Just add this. Just add some Jewish legalism. Just add some, uh, some modern philosophy. Just, just add some political correctness. Just add in something to Jesus. And anytime you add to Jesus, you subtract from Jesus. You cannot add 
to perfection. He says, I want you to do that so that you are not taken captive. Now, what practically can you do in regard to this? I'm going to tell you that I believe that in the world in which we live in, and I think about this a lot, about being a parent and raising a child. I want to make sure, first of all, that every belief I have is based in God's word. It is so easy through media sources and through, uh, through music that I can begin to adopt attitudes that are totally contrary to God's word. And I need to make sure that I believe what the Bible says. Now, there are a couple of ways that you need to do that. Number one is you should be reading it for yourself. We advocate strongly for reading through the Bible. And, and if you're not part of that plan, you can just jump on at any time. You can jump in anytime you want. But I want to challenge you to personally read your Bible. Secondly, you should be a part of a life group. You should be a part of a group of people in your age, stage, and phase of life who are studying God's word together to say, how do we navigate this? How do we make sure that we, we're leading our families and we're conducting our marriages and, and we're raising our children in a way that honors God? Because I've read the end of the book. And let me help you with something. The fact of the matter is that our culture has dramatically changed in the last 10 years. Now, it was changing before that. But in the last 10 years, we've seen a seismic shift in attitudes about sexuality and gender and marriage, foundational truths of Scripture. And this is what I want you to understand. It's not going to get better. I read the end of the book. It's not. And you as a believer are going to have to be firmly rooted, built and established to stand against the onslaught that is coming. Now that's probably not the most positive thing I've ever said to you. But barring a great spiritual awakening in this country, and I pray for one, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to stand alone. But let me tell you something. The light of the gospel will shine brightest against a dark backdrop of a culture that has gone awry. But we got to stand firm. And we got to be built and established. And we've got to be firmly rooted. And I want to challenge you with that. I find it interesting that Paul used the metaphor of a captive here as well. Because what the lost world, what, what the secular world will tell you is, oh, oh, religion will put you in bondage. Christianity will put you in bondage. Christianity is not freedom. Come with us. Uh, adopt our philosophy. That's where real freedom is. Let me say this to you. I would agree with him on one point. Religion will put you in bondage. But we're not talking about religion. We're talking about a relationship with a living Lord Jesus Christ. We're talking about you walking with a best friend every day. We're talking about you serving the God of the universe. And Jesus said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then later he said this, the truth is what really sets you free. What our world calls freedom is really bondage. And what they call bondage, a relationship with Jesus, is true freedom.
Would you bow your heads, please? For some of you today, the appeal of the message is simply for you to make the decision that you are going to stand firm in this culture that wants to move farther and farther away from the God of the Bible and from what he says is true. And maybe for some of you today, it is a resolution, it is a decision in your heart to say, I am going to go to life group or I am going to read my Bible every day. I am going to stand. I'm gonna put some roots down. Maybe for some of us, it's a parenting decision that we're gonna make sure that what is taught and what we act out in our home agrees with the Bible. Maybe that's the decision that you need to make today. But for some of you, God is calling on you and he's saying, I wanna set you free. You've looked for freedom in drugs and you've looked for freedom in alcohol and you've looked for freedom in money and you've looked for freedom in pursuing relationships and what you've found is it's just bondage. But Jesus said, the truth will set you free. And he offers you freedom today, real freedom. If you will simply turn to him, if you will simply in honest and open confession, repentance and belief, he will set you free today. If you will simply say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I have done things that are wrong. I've broken your commandments, but I believe that you died on the cross to forgive my sins. And I believe that you were raised from the dead to give me eternal life. And that eternal life can start right now. Jesus, come into my life. I want to overflow in my life for you. So come into my life today. I give my life freely and willingly to you. Jesus, I pray today for those who would ask you for that. We claim the promise from your word that says anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Lord, do your work today is my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.